My name is Glenn Scrivener, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I hear a lot of people describing our culture as post-Christian. In fact, I would tend to do that myself. And often what's meant by this is that at one point in our history, our society held Christian ethics central to its core identity. But that day is no more. Now, on one level, I think this kind of nostalgia tends to ignore the evils of slavery, racism, genocide, and worldwide warfare that came from the West. But more importantly, it ignores how even a so-called post-Christian society still moors itself on Christian values. Whether or not you call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's a good chance that your worldview is still, in many ways, shaped thoroughly by Christianity. If that sounds like a crazy statement, then you need to meet today's guest, Glenn Scrivener. He's an Aussie, a minister of the Church of England, and the author of multiple books, including The Air We Breathe, How All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. As you'll discover, Glenn isn't an intellectual slouch. He's carefully studied how Christianity radically transformed the West and how it's still at work in the minds and hearts of people who've never even stepped inside a church. Glenn, it's so great having you on the show. I absolutely loved your book. I'm texting it out to all of my friends because in many ways, I think it's the book that our post-Christian world needs. And even that word, I mean, we could have an interesting conversation about post-Christian. I think we will. But before we do, I want you to tell us about Goldfish. Okay. I start the book with the illustration. David Foster Wallace, I guess, popularized it that fish don't see the water. You know, two fish passing one another. One says, how's the water? The other says, water, what's water? (laughs) I guess that is kind of a parable for the way that we live in the world. And instead of water, I'm talking about moral intuitions and assumptions and just your gut instinct Mm. about the way that life operates. And we tend to think that the moral intuitions that we have are natural, they are obvious, they are universal. And this book is saying they are absolutely nothing of the sort. (laughs) They are very particular to the Christian revolution that we inhabit. And if that's news to people, I guess that's just evidence of how powerfully the Jesus revolution has shaped us. We think that our beliefs in compassion and equality and consent and enlightenment and all these things, we think they are absolutely natural. And what I'm trying to do is kind of take us out of the goldfish bowl a little bit and show us non-Christian and pre-Christian cultures and show us that whether you've ever stepped foot inside a church or not, 
you have been shaped by Christianity in a similar way to the way in which goldfish swim within water. It's that kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, the other metaphor you use is the title of your book. It's the air that we breathe. And and I have to say, that's a really, really bold claim to say that Christianity is the air that I suppose the modern West and increasingly more and more of the world breathe. And I can imagine people from about every walk of life pushing back on you <laughs> and saying, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is not the air that we breathe. And so let me step into their shoes. I actually want to start with Christians because I think a lot of Christians, at least in America right now, which is our audience primarily, they would say, look, society is falling apart. We're living in a post-Christian culture. And so, no, Christianity is no longer—it was the air we breathe. It's no longer the air that we breathe. What would you say to that person? I would just want to push into what you find so offensive about Christianity. And what you will find is that they hold the church to particularly Christian-ish standards. Mm. So I've got seven values in the book that I speak about. I speak about equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And I say that these are not universal to you know non-Christian cultures. They are not obvious. They are not the results of doing logic or experiments. They have come to us through Christianity. And if somebody says to us, no, it's not just Christianity that has given us these things, or perhaps Christianity has given us these things and we've moved on from it, I just want to say, by what standard are you judging Christianity? And usually people will find Christianity to be unequal, non-compassionate, that is cruel. They will find it to be coercive rather than consensual. They will find it to be unenlightened rather than enlightened. They will find it to be anti-science rather than science. They will, they will complain about Christianity being restrictive rather than being about freedom. They will complain that Christianity is regressive rather than progressive. And at that point, I want to ask, well, by what standard are you judging Christianity? And I often say that the thoroughness of the Christian revolution is seen in the facts that even people's critiques of Christianity are profoundly Christian critiques. Mm. And your conversations with your friends that say, no, we've moved beyond Christianity because Christianity is X. Usually you'll find that they use a term that is the polar opposite of the values that we've been given. Mm. Christianity is the worst because it is unenlightened, because it is coercive, because it is not equal or compassionate. And at that stage, if Christianity is the worst, well, I guess you've got to ask the question, what is the best? And who has taught us that these values are the best? And I think it's a pretty obvious case to say it's Christianity who has given us the moral framework by which we judge the church, whether we're inside the church or outside the church. Yeah, that's fascinating. So maybe let's get a little more particular. And I'd love to start by talking about human rights. And it might help if you and I hop into a time machine for a second and go to the ancient world before there was a Jesus, before there was anything called Christianity. What was the water that ancient Greeks, ancient Romans swimmed in? What was the air that they were breathing? What did they believe about humanity? Inequality was utterly woven into the fabric of the cosmos. You know, there was a very steep hierarchy of being at the top are the gods, at the bottom, the slaves, and everybody finds their place somewhere in that hierarchy of being. And so you go to a Plato or an Aristotle, you know, they say that Western philosophy is just the footnotes to Plato. And as he writes two and a half thousand years ago, he has uh, very developed moral systems, very developed political ideas, and yet 
the idea of equality, the idea that we are individuals, the idea that we have inviolable human rights, which must never be trodden upon or traded off for the greater good. These would have appeared as nonsense to a Plato. A Plato would say to you, look, you've got this guy and that guy. This guy is smarter than that guy. This guy is more economically viable than that guy. This guy is stronger than that guy. This guy is better looking than that guy. This guy is a master and that guy is a slave. This guy is a citizen and that guy is a slave. This guy is a member of the city. This guy is a total barbarian and outsider. This guy's a man and she is a woman. And almost every metric you apply to two different individuals is going to yield the result of difference. And a Plato would say that our modern Western sensibilities, that everybody's equal, he would say, well, equal how? I've just told you all the ways that they're different. Where does this equality exist? It exists as modern philosopher and historian like Yuval Noah Harari would say, it exists in the stories that particularly Jews and Christians have been telling the world. It does not exist as a scientific fact, and it does not exist as a mathematical fact. It does not exist as the result of logic or evidence. It has come to us through Christianity. And going back to a Plato or an Aristotle is like coming out of the goldfish bowl and seeing a different water that different people kind of swam in or breathing a different kind of an air. And you realize that so many of these sensibilities that we take as universal and natural and obvious are absolutely nothing of the sort. So are you saying that if you went back and you had a conversation with Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or any of these you know, great Greek ancient thinkers, and you said, hey, men and women, they are both equal in dignity and value, what would they say to that? Obviously false. I'll mangle the quote, but Aristotle thought that a woman was a deformed man. A woman is a deformed man, Mm. said Aristotle. Aristotle and Plato would say that nature teaches you that some are born to rule and some are born to be ruled over. And the words that they use for those to be ruled over is slaves, or they would call them living tools. And they would be very logical about it. And they would say, look, you assess humanity and some people can get their lives together. And some people are very cool and collected and they have a sense of autonomy and they can run their lives well. Other people just don't have that, those poor, degraded individuals. And wouldn't it be nice if the people who are good at ruling ruled over the people who are not so good at ruling? And they make an argument from nature that nature teaches you slavery. Nature teaches you that inequality is woven into the fabric of the cosmos. Now, if you step outside the biblical framework, it's very difficult to argue against them actually. Because when you look out at the world, there are inequalities everywhere. And some people are richer and some people are poorer. And some people do have their lives together a lot better than other people do. But everything in us rises up and says, but no, they are thoroughly equal. And what is it that is rising up within us to say that? That is our Christianity talking. And so your point is, if you were talking to an ancient person, that feeling would not rise up within them. They wouldn't feel umbrage and say, no, you need to stop right there. We are all equal. What you're saying is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, it's morally repugnant. They wouldn't feel that same sense, again, of umbrage, anger, frustration. I can't believe you're saying it. So where did that come from in the Christian story? Okay, there were very often uprisings of the slaves, let's say. But at that point, the slaves are not seeking justice, right? They are seeking privileges, privileges that have been denied to them. Mm. And so, you know, they don't like being downtrodden. They don't like being treated as slaves. But what they are seeking in doing that is not justice. Justice, in an ancient sense, is the enforcement of the inequality that is woven into nature. Mm. Whereas justice for us is actually a sense of radically equalizing that which might be unequal when we look at things just naturalistically. Where did this all come from? Well, here comes Jesus and... He 
goes from the top of the hierarchy right to the bottom. Hmm. What do you mean when you say that? So he is the son of the father filled with the spirit, co-creator of the cosmos. He is Lord, as Christians call him, and he dies the death of a slave. And this is sort of the one fact about him that is known. The very earliest depiction of Jesus in art is a graffiti. It's called the Alexamenos graffiti. You can find it scratched into a wall on the Palatine Hill in Rome. And it is drawn by an opponent of Christianity who is mocking the Christian faith. And he's got a picture of this figure on a cross with the head of a donkey. And there is a worshiper at the foot of the cross with his arms sort of outstretched in veneration. And the caption just says, Alex Amanos worships his God. And I think that beautifully pictures what an absolute asteroid Christianity was falling on the ancient world. That it's the most absurd claim that a God would show up right at the foot of this, you know, hierarchy of being, you know, crucifixion was the slave's death and it was shameful as well as painful. And it was absolutely reserved for the scum of the earth. And so where do you get equality from? Well, you get it from the most profound love story there's ever been, which is that the very highest one descends to the very lowest depths in order to have the greatest impact on the greatest number of people for all time. It's a love story, the dimensions of which are unsurpassed and unsurpassable. It is the highest descending to the deepest depths. And here is the upending of nature and the upending of all those sort of natural inequalities. You know, modern people have a very unequal sense of the world. Survival of the fittest is driven by inequality, right? That's how you get an advantage over other members of the species that are weaker. It is survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. But at the cross, you've got the sacrifice of the fittest, Christ, for the survival of the weakest, us, that we might be brought into his kind of life and invited around a table as brothers and sisters where there is no Lord in this family except Christ himself, and we are all brothers and sisters. That is the story that has upended the inequalities of the ancient world. And as it has bedded itself down in our society, it has now become the air we breathe. And so going from a plate to a modern person, it's like night and day. It really is night and day, which is why the first chapter of my book I call The Night Before Christmas, because before Christmas, before this advent of the Christ story, you just don't get that sense of equality. And now it is almost the most obvious moral truth that we have to proclaim. What happens? Well, Christianity happened. It's fascinating as you say this, because even if you look at pop culture, you know, take the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the idea, the story of a great one who sacrifices himself for those who are not great, it is so deeply moving that it's woven into all of our stories. And even if you don't want to cry during those movies, I can't help it. I always end up crying. Like, oh my gosh, this isn't even a good movie. And I'm out here crying because yeah. it's a beautiful story of sacrificial love of the great one sacrificing himself. But what I'm hearing you say, and it's really profound, is that if we went back just 2,000 years or a little more than 2,000 years ago, and we told that same story story, it would have become graffiti on a wall because it would have been ridiculous. <laughs> no one would have found yes. that to be a moving story. The fact that I find it moving just shows how deeply embedded this story has become into our social consciousness. Yes. So if I was going to write further chapters to the book and identify further sort of moral intuitions that we have beyond the seven, I think our concept of heroism would be one of those extra chapters that I would do. Mm. I think it's a fascinating thought to compare a Hercules with a Christ. Right? <laughs> the heroes of the ancient world and the gods of the ancient world were vicious, violent rapists who you could not trust and were not trustworthy. They did great deeds, 
but this concept of you know sacrifice as being virtuous rather than a sign of utter weakness and contemptibility that again is a gift of christianity to the world yeah so how did jesus change our conception of compassion because if you talk to the average person the idea that compassion is good would just be a truism it doesn't even need to be said it's accepted as a moral fact of reality but in the ancient world according to your work maybe that wasn't the case it really wasn't the case. I mean, so for instance, the ancient worlds, the Greeks had their manuals of medicine. And, you know, Galen would talk about the four humors within people. And so they'd have theories about medicine. And the Romans, they had sort of sick bays. They didn't have hospitals. They had sick bays for your slaves or for your soldiers. And they would restore your slave or your soldier to sort of, you know, working competencies. But it was not the sense of going out and finding the leprous and the poor and the sick and the orphans and bringing them in and taking care of them. This, again, was a unique contribution of Christianity to the world. The idea of charity in the ancient world was very much, okay, what do I do with my wealth if I have any? Well, I either sort of display it with pomp or I kind of sort of waste it. And part of the pomp might have been, let's put on bread and circuses for the masses. You know, let's, let's help people to that degree. But it was very much a sense of adding to the pomp of your own name. Charity in the Christian sense was another amazing gift to the world. And one of the ways that I talk about it in the book is just think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the Good Samaritan, you've got this loser who ends up getting beaten up and in the ancient stories, if Aesop was telling a fable in which, you know, some guy gets beaten up in an alleyway late at night, the moral to the story is don't go down alleyways late at night, <laughs> idiot. Right. Yeah. And yet that's not the moral of this story. In this story, you've got somebody, the Good Samaritan, who expends themselves and crosses over every kind of ancient barrier of inequality that existed in the ancient world in order to love the stranger, love the enemy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And Christ, of course, is the ultimate good Samaritan who kind of crosses over every barrier and loves us at our worst and then passes the towel to us and says, now you go and do likewise. Now you go and serve. And Christians historically have done that. And we have meditated for 2000 years on this symbol that for Alex Aminos was so contemptible, but for us is so praiseworthy that the highest would sacrifice himself for the weakest. And when you start to praise that image, when you start to worship Christ the victim for you, then your moral sensibilities start to recalibrate in radical ways. And suddenly you had, instead of infanticide being just a universal in human civilizations, suddenly Christians were touring the rubbish dumps where these children were exposed to die and they would collect them and put them in orphanages and raise them up. And what were they doing as they went out to those garbage dumps? What were they seeking? They were actually seeking God because God shows himself in the Christ story to be precisely the sort of person who would meet you at your worst, at your lowest, as you're wriggling and writhing on a garbage dump. I mean, garbage dumps were traditionally sites of crucifixion. God met us on a garbage dump, naked and wriggling. And Christians did this perverse thing of worshiping such a character, but it transformed them and it transformed their moral sensibilities such that they thought, I can encounter God in the least and the last and the last. And when God shows up, he shows up as a victim for victims. It suddenly gives a very profound sense of the dignity and the worth of every person, especially those at the bottom of the pile, so that 
when God shows up, he looks like compassion. I just love in Titus 3 verse 4, when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. And it's it's speaking of Christ as compassion himself. He is kindness. And what's interesting historically is that that seems to have occurred. You know, in the first century, kindness appeared. Like kindness really did appear. <laughs> and it appeared as a virtue hmm. um, that has spread and taken roots in civilization. And so it's another pointer, I guess, to the truth of the Christian story. Kindness really did appear, but it's not an abstract value. It's a person himself, Jesus. Well, again, Glenn, you're pointing to a really stark picture, which is if a modern person walked past a trash dump, now they're mostly outside the city, so we don't do much trash dump walking anymore, and we saw an infant there screaming and crying, there is hardly any living person, aside from maybe sociopaths, who would not do the right thing. They would pick that baby up and figure out how to take it to a hospital and try to make sure that it was taken care of. And we have all these systems that we developed, by the way, to take care of that baby. You might not even have to do it yourself because that's the kind of society we live in. But what you're telling me is in the ancient world— Throwing a child onto the trash dump because maybe it had a physical disability or you didn't want to have a girl or whatever other reason, you would walk right right past the baby and say, oh, that's too bad. They didn't want the child, but there's nothing to see here. Yes, there is that. I mean, one slight pushback I'd have is that we do walk on by on the other side of the road all the time. Mm. And Christians walk on by on the other side of the road. And, you know, there are in this country, two and a half thousand children looking for adoption in the UK and will probably never be adopted and will go into foster care and that won't be great for them. Mm. And as a society, we do walk on by. And as Christians, even, we do walk on by. And so the argument of the book is not that we have become morally better. It is that the standards by which we judge ourselves and judge society have become Christianized standards that we still fall short of. And so the argument is not we have become a morally better species. It is that we have started to define morality in a very different way. And an ancient person walking on by on the other side of the guy in the Good Samaritan or on the other side of an infant who's been exposed and left to die, that is not an immoral behavior in the ancient world. And I think what the ancient person would rationalize about that whole situation is, well, the parents have decided that for the child. Or, you know, the society has left this person to die, or the gods have left this person to die. Who am I? Who am I to interrupt nature? Who am I to stand against what fate has decreed or what the gods have decreed? And writing this book, it's really helped me to see that grace is such an interruption. Grace is an intervention. And I mean that in a sort of, you know, drug addiction recovery kind of a sense. It's this stepping into a situation and saying the way that nature is unfolding here is wrong and it needs interrupting and it needs someone to take things by the scruff of the neck and turn them around. It means an intervention. And actually the coming of Christ has been an intervention in a world that does just naturally walk on by. And the church, again, is meant to be this intervention in the world that as things unravel and as we do, and and my flesh just naturally wants to walk on by, and I'm called by Christ to go and do likewise and to interrupt, to intervene, and to do the Jesus thing, which is not what nature is doing. It is a supernatural thing to arrest this survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. It is supernatural. Nature doesn't teach me to do this, but Christ teaches me to do this. And what I find fascinating is that my compassionate non-Christian friends also believe in the supernatural because they also recognize that it is the wrong thing to do to walk on by on the other side of the road. And sometimes they outperform me in their compassion. And my argument is not to say that I can outperform them in compassion. My argument is, yes, you can outperform me 
in compassion, but it is only because you assent to this highest value that is above nature, that is supernatural. So you might not think you believe in the supernatural. If you believe in compassion, you totally do. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. So let's continue this conversation around how the moral imagination, in particular of the West, has been radically transformed and speak to how men and women interacted and specifically about sexual ethics. The way that we think about sex now, we use terms like consent, which you talk about in your book, is radically, radically different than, again, how a Plato or Aristotle would have thought of it. Well, I mean, it was a very scary world and the economy of the ancient world, let's say in Rome, um, kind of revolved around sexual exploitation. And there were even state-sponsored brothels because it was considered to be for the good of the male citizenry of Rome to have free and easy access to inferior bodies. And so brothels were absolutely ubiquitous. They were everywhere. And a visit to a brothel would cost about the price of a loaf of bread. There are 25 Latin words for prostitute. And yet in Latin, there is no natural way to refer to an adult male virgin. If you refer to an adult virgin, it is assumed that you're referring to a female. <laughs> like an adult male virgin is not a thing in, in the Roman world. And so the sexual mores of ancient Rome, it was a world of shame and not of sin. And that's a kind of a conceptualization brought out by historian Kyle Harper, who wrote a brilliant book called From Shame to Sin. You don't want to be shameful. And so a man who overindulged his sexual appetites, he would be called effeminate, right? But there was an absolute sexual double standard. Men were assumed to be able to possess the bodies of anyone who was their inferior. Women, on the other hand, were expected to be chaste. They were expected to be virgins when they married. They probably didn't have to wait very long. Marriage at 12 was very common in the Roman world. And it's into that context that Jesus comes and Matthew 19, he equalizes the sexes in the most extraordinary way. And he expects men to be as chaste as women had always been expected to be. 
And when he unfolds his sexual ethic in Matthew 19, he just basically says one man, one woman for life, and that's it. And then, you know, the disciples, many of whom were married, <laughs> said, oh, it would be better if we weren't married, which I always think is funny. Like, <laughs> as soon as Matthew publishes his gospel, I wonder what the wives thought. You know? And then people would say, you know, isn't there any other sexual outlets? And Jesus is like, no, I mean, you could be a eunuch for the kingdom, but that's that. It's either chaste singleness or it's marriage. So if I'm tracking with you, you're saying, look, in the ancient world, men had not just sexual freedom, they had freedom to what from our view we would describe as oppress other individuals, other women, boys, as long as they were within their charge or if they were going to a brothel, they had the right to express themselves sexually. And this was seen actually as a moral, good, normal thing. And what you're describing in the Jesus revolution is not that Jesus came along and said, okay, women, now you can be just as sexually exploitative as men are. Instead, he called men to a higher standard and said, no, you need to be chaste as women are chaste. You need to, just as they do, embrace an ethic of consent. And in a real way, and I thought this was fascinating in your book, this gives us the category that we hear so much of today, which is abuse. The idea that someone could sexually misuse someone else. So could you talk a little bit about abuse and how that comes out of Christianity or the concept of abuse comes out of Christianity. Right. Well, you need to have a doctrine of the equality of the sexes. You need to have a doctrine of the inviolable human rights of every person. You need to have a doctrine that victims have a special status and dignity and that we must protect them. You must think that sex is meaningful, such that a violation of someone sexually is a really egregious sin against a person. You have to believe some very distinctive things to have a category for abuse. And all those things have been given to us by Christianity. In the ancient world, pederasty was celebrated. Now, the Greek word means love of children. Pederasty means love of children. And it was this thing that was celebrated by all the ancient writers where older men would induct usually younger men, younger boys, into the ways of sexuality in a way that we would just in an unqualified way considered to be abuse and the kind of abuse that would put you behind bars for the rest of your life. This was celebrated in the ancient world. It was called pederasty, child love. Christians and Jews called it pedophoria, which means child destruction. So what was celebrated in the ancient world as love, Christians denounced as abuse. And really, once Christianity took hold in the Roman Empire and there were Christian emperors, it started to be a crime to abuse certainly members of your household, but also if there are slaves in the household, it was a crime that slaves, even decades after their abuse, could come forward and make allegations. And there would be a crime that was known as child destruction back in the day. But to an ancient Roman who knew nothing of the gospel, who knew nothing of the Bible or the teachings of Christ, these things, they didn't have a category for it. It was invisible. Abuse was happening all the time. Violation of bodies was happening all the time. But there was no category. It just wasn't a thing. And when you think about it, the Me Too movement or any kind of popular consciousness of the evils, the utter unconscionable evils of abuse, whether it's of a child or of anyone, that unconscionable evil only makes sense if you believe certain things, that sex is a really meaningful thing, that bodies are like temples, that men and women are equal, that victims have a special status, that power should not be used to dominate others, but should be used to serve and protect. You've got to believe the most profoundly Christian things in order to believe in sexual abuse. And it's been brought home to me recently. There's a great book by Louise Perry. We're going to have her on the podcast soon. 
Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, she's absolutely brilliant. And she describes herself as a materialist feminist. One of the things that sort of put her on the path that she's on in writing a book that she's just written that's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution is she worked in a rape crisis center for most of her 20s. And she saw the evil of sexual abuse. But if it's evil with a capital E, then there's got to be something that's good with a capital G. What standards do we have that we are using? Because it's one of the kind of moral certainties that we have. We don't have very many moral certainties anymore, but child sexual abuse is probably the great moral certainty that we have at the moment. And yet, why is it so evil? Well, because it violates some profoundly Christian ideals that we all have. And so when we are outraged at abuse, it is a particularly Christian outrage that we're feeling. It's the air that we breathe. It's the water we're swimming in. You know, if someone came to you and asked, why are you so offended by this abuse? Frankly, you probably wouldn't have a conversation with that person. Say, well, if if you don't understand this fundamental reality, we're going to have a hard time conversing about it. And again, I think the point you're drawing out is that seems fundamental because we have so deeply drunken in these waters. We have so deeply breathed in the air of Christian ethics. Well, I mean, Jermaine Greer, for instance, she's an Australian and a feminist. I'm Australian as well. But she got into such hot water for saying, what's the big idea with sexual abuse? What's the big deal? You know, and she got into such hot water for saying what actually on her moral presuppositions and the moral presuppositions of her critics, it should logically follow that if you don't think bodies are temples and if you don't think sex is special, then why is rape so bad? You know, if I force you to play a game of tennis with me, I'm just weird, right? But if I force you to have sex with me, I'm a rapist. And we acknowledge that there's something radically different between rape and a weird game of tennis because there's something radically different about sex. There's something very special. What is so special about it? You know, I'm old enough to remember the song, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. And what we're left with in the modern day, when we still have the sensibility that sexual abuse is wrong, thank God, is you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's honor one another's sexual boundaries at all times. It doesn't work. Now, I can imagine someone at this point, as we're talking through how Christianity really is the foundation upon which we build concepts like human rights. It's where we get concepts like abuse. But I can imagine someone saying, look, the church has just perpetrated terrible evils in history. You know, they might think of the forced baptisms that Charlemagne did, or the Crusades, or enslavement, or the Spanish Inquisition, or the religious wars that happened, you know, after the Reformation. Say, look, look at all this tremendous evil caused by Christianity. So, sure, you can try to tell me that you've created our moral foundations, but come on. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, that's important for people to point out. And the point at that stage is not for Christians to say, yeah, but we haven't been as bad as the other guys down the road. That would be a very foolish and wrong response to make to that. What I do in the book is absolutely acknowledge sometimes Christians have been the worst abusers in the world. And very often the cover-ups of abuse have been as egregious as the abuse itself. And we have so much blood on our hands. One of the things I do in the consent chapter is quote from Rachel Van Hollander, who blew the whistle on Larry Nassar. As far as serial abusers go, it's hard to find somebody who has abused as many women and girls, as Larry Nassar has, and he is behind bars for the rest of his life. In the victim impact statement that she made back in 2017, I believe, Rachel Van Hollander, who is a Christian, she quotes from C.S. Lewis, 
in her 17-minute victim impact statement. And if people haven't heard that 17 minutes, go to YouTube and find it. It's just, it's a gut punch, but it is such a necessary gut punch. And she refers people to what C.S. Lewis said about evil. Evil is like crooked lines. And if you never had the idea of a straight line, you would never have the idea of a crooked line. Lines would just be lines if there's no straight line against which we're judging crooked lines to be crooked. If there's no straight lines, the lines are just lines. And what do you expect? And by parallel, things are evil, things are wrong, things are crooked in a moral sense, only if there is something that is straight. And Rachel says, Larry Nasser, I can judge what you've done as evil and evil with a capital E because I know what the straight line is. And what is the straight line? The straight line is that bodies are temples and sex is special and men and women are equal and victims have a special status and power should be used to serve and not to dominate. That is the straight line. And you can do it with all these great evils, the Crusades. You know, Why is it so egregious to go to war with your enemy rather than persuade your enemy? Why is that? Well, it's the straight line of the cross, that banner under which they fought, that judges what the Crusaders did as morally unconscionable. But to enact the Crusades under any other banner is not problematic at all. To do it under the banner of uh, Genghis Khan or a Julius Caesar or an Alexander the Great or even under a Muhammad, that is not morally problematic, actually. These things are morally problematic because of the straight line by which we're judging them to be crooked. And so I think it's a mistake for Christians when they're attacked for these things to minimize and say, ah, oh, it's not really so bad after all. I think the real response is to say, oh, it's even worse than you think. This is not just a moral crime. This is a sin against Christ and against the way of Christ that is ultimately woven into the fabric of the cosmos. And to the degree that we name the crookedness of these things, I think is the degree to which we can then point to the straight line and say, these things are really crooked because Christ really is that good. So that's my approach in the book, is not to be an apologist for any of these things. I raise crusades, and I raise the Inquisition, I raise the treating of Galileo, and I raise church abuse, and I raise all these things. But it is as we press into the crookedness of this thing, hopefully people then hang on to you as they see that you are honest and able to admit error, to then say, now can we talk about the standards by which we're judging this? And let's look to Christ the straight line. That's a powerful answer, and I agree. I don't know what the knee-jerk impulse is in so many Christians to try to defend wrong when it happens rather than name it, but I think we all have that temptation, and I appreciate it in your book, your willingness to say, no, these things are wrong, and we know they're wrong because of our Christian values. That is precisely the reason why we can name them as evil with a capital E. Now, as someone's thinking about this question, is Christianity really the air that we breathe in our culture? The obvious next question someone's going to go to is the anti-science question, because I'll say, look, Christianity— created a thousand-year-long period of the Dark Ages, the medieval era, where science didn't advance. And really, it was because of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment that we began to develop our understanding of the universe. And Christianity did everything it could to obstruct that from happening. In fact, we had Jonathan Rausch on the podcast, and he wrote a book about how we create knowledge. And he talks about the people who do this. He calls them the knowledge-based community. And they do this with the scientific method. And in his view, people like Aristotle and Plato, they would be included <laughs> within the knowledge-based he talks about them. He would include them inside of this knowledge-based community. But people like Jesus and Christian ethicists, they are on the outside. In fact, in his view, they've been the major obstructors, at least in the West, of these things happening. So in your book, you tackle this issue from multiple angles, but maybe we could start here. The idea that we are progressing— 
that science is taking us forward into the future. That is a story. That is a narrative that we have. And you make an interesting point just to say, okay, where do we get that story from? Where do we get this scientific story of enlightenment and science freeing us from, you know, hot weather outside? I've got air conditioning and a refrigerator. Where do we get that narrative from? It's such a fascinating narrative that is so strong and it resists all the evidence you want to throw at it. (laughs) This idea that Christianity held us back from science and is the enemy of science is such a powerful idea. And it is so unscientific because it it does not accord with the facts. (laughs) It is a hypothesis that has been thoroughly disproved, I think, by all the evidence, evidence such as, you know, it is Christians in Christian universities for Christian reasons who founded the modern scientific method. And it is Christians today who, obviously, many atheists and people of all faiths and none are engaged in the scientific enterprise now. But the idea that Christianity and science are at war with one another just doesn't take into account modern science. It certainly does not take into account the origins of science. And to think of Aristotle as a friend of the scientific revolution, when actually the scientific revolution was in large part the overturning of an Aristotelian system. So Copernicus having his great movement of putting the sun at the center of the solar system and let there be lights, you know, this kind of largely the previous five, uh, previous a thousand years really have been the overturning of a whole bunch of Aristotelian assumptions that had held back scientific knowledge. And it had been Christians for Christian reasons in Christian universities. Notice universities were the invention of Christians in those bad old dark ages, the medieval period. (laughs) So in your book, you explore and you juxtapose kind of how ancient people would have thought about how you think about nature, how you study nature with how Christians did it. And you made a comparison. I don't know if you came up with it, but it was really brilliant. You were pointing out that the scientific method really is a reflection of the first three chapters of the Bible. So maybe for us, help us see how the scientific method, what we think of as, you know, this great gift that has brought us so many great things, really actually, interestingly, comes out of the Christian story and not out of that Aristotelian Platonic story. So for an Aristotle, nature unfolds according to logic, reason. There's a way things must be, and it is a rational reason why everything must be. And therefore, the way to understand nature is to go deeper into your own rationality, and it's philosophers who can understand the cosmos. And therefore, they descend further and further within themselves to reason out the way things must be. And it is not their instinct at all to go out into the world and experiment on the surprising way that things actually are. You know, Aristotle said that men have more teeth than women and that bees have four legs and that heavier objects fall faster than lighter objects. All of these things are really easy to disprove. I could run you some experiments (laughs) that would take about 30 seconds right now. We could drop a teaspoon and a tablespoon right now and I could show you that lighter objects and heavier objects fall at the same rate. But Aristotle was teaching these things and it was believed for a thousand years that if you want to look at the shackles that held us back. It's the Christian church releasing us from those particular shackles. Why? Because they believed in Genesis. On page one of the Bible, you've got humanity made in the image of God with dominion over the world. And right there, you've got a triangulation of the three things you need in order to do science. You've got the ordering of the cosmos up above, let's say. There is an ordered God. There is a God of regularity and order who speaks, and it is so, and he methodically creates over the course of Genesis chapter one. And therefore, you've got 
laws up above, and then you've got humanity made uniquely in the image of God. And so we have, to some degree, access to the mind of God, or we correspond to God in a very special and particular way. That means we have a chance, at least, of grasping some of that regularity, some of that order. And then we have dominion over the world that is out there. And in Genesis 2, the Lord says to Adam, just go and name the animals. You know, this is taxonomy. This is science that is being done. And so you've got the triangulation of laws up above, minds in here, and a world out there. The idea that those three things actually triangulate is an extraordinary idea. Einstein said the absolute miracle of the world is that it is comprehensible. The comprehensibility of the universe is the miracle of this world, but it is the miracle that science is built on. Why did anyone get the idea that this three pounds of gray matter that sits between my two ears has any chance of grasping the mysteries of the cosmos and that those mysteries can be empirically tested and that they would hold both here and on the far side of Neptune? Why should that be so? There are only very few worldviews that actually say these things should be so, but Christianity happens to be one of them. And then it adds another layer to things. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve get things wrong and they reason incorrectly, actually, in Genesis three. And the fallenness of our thinking was, again, a really important thing that Christians grasped and helped them to sort of put Aristotle in the rearview mirror a little bit, because because Aristotle was all about the, you know, the philosopher being able to access reason. And Genesis 3 teaches us that we're idiots and we're self-justifying fools. And so we are not to be trusted. Our reason is not to be trusted. It is to be tested. And so those sort of ideas that are taught, you know, in the opening chapters of the Bible are right at the heart of the scientific revolution. And the last 500 years have really been a confirmation that the world is indeed as miraculous as Einstein said it was, that the triangulation holds, that these brains are able to understand the regularity of the world and to go out into the world and test it. And every scientific advance is actually a confirmation of the hypothesis that humans are indeed made with a special connection to the ways of the cosmos and a special connection to the world that is beneath our feet. Every scientific advance, I would say, confirms the hypothesis that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are indeed the way that the world operates. That was a really profound thought for me. And it's helpful to go back, like you said, and realize that if you're talking to Aristotle, the way to understand the natural universe is not to go study nature. You know, let's talk about the amount of teeth that you have in your mouth. That's easy to do. The way to understand nature is to go into abstraction, to go into your mind, which is to Aristotle in some senses infallible. We can trust human reason. And you draw out this point saying, no, look, the Christian revolution gives us the whole picture that we can go into nature and we can understand it because there is an ordered God. And yet we can get it wrong which is why we have to test our hypotheses. And I've never seen the scientific method right there in the Bible. But when you go back to some of the earliest physicists who were profoundly Christian, it's easy to understand when you realize the story that they were living in. That helped them do their work. It wasn't a hindrance to their work. No, there were people of deep and profound faith. And what really struck me was how profoundly the image of God had a central place in their thinking. And I've never really thought about it so deeply that you've got to really have a very special view of the place of humanity to think that Homo sapiens clinging to this insignificant rock that's swinging around an insignificant star in the western <laughs> end of the spiral arm of the Milky Way, to think that this species have some purchase on ultimate reality. Yeah. It's a really exalted view of humanity, actually, to even do science. 
well, no wonder it's those who believe in the God man who think <laughs> that man has some purchase on the ways that things ultimately are. Yeah, without Genesis, it's just a solipsism. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a ridiculous statement to make about yourself. And I remember reading a philosopher who made a similar point and said, look, if all we have is the evolutionary story, we have no reason to trust our reason because we know how our reason developed. It was for the sake of survival. And right. surviving doesn't require you to be able to comprehend physics. Right. Surviving doesn't <laughs> require you to be able to comprehend how the universe and just look at other animals and it's not hard to understand. Well, that does seem to be how they are. That's how their minds work. And so again, that idea of the image of God, the comprehensibility of the universe and our ability to in a godlike way, like you said, in the middle of a galaxy, in the middle of a billion galaxies, <laughs> comprehend the universe is profound. And it's something I think that can be comprehensible really only within the Christian story. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, there's a naturalistic argument against naturalism in that if our brains have evolved only for the purpose of survival, survival does not map onto truth value. Quite the opposite, actually. <laughs> I don't know if your high school was the same as mine, but it wasn't always the smartest guys that got the girls. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you're battling through some past stuff right there. Yeah. We'll let that one slide. <laughs> Another critique that I know people will wrestle with, especially right now, is just simply the question, isn't the church backwards? You know, it seems like the world is progressing in its ethics and its understanding of reality, but the church always seems to be wanting us to live in the past. And so that makes me, I guess, ask a broad question, or maybe two questions. One is, where do we get the idea that things are always getting better? <laughs> that's the story that's being told. Yeah, of course, today is better than yesterday, and the next day will be better than the last. But on the second half of that, I mean, is it time for the church to get with the program and move forward with progress? Yeah. And again, if people make that kind of critique of the church, you again want to say, by what standard? Why should we think that things are getting better? The Greeks kind of thought that we were descending from a golden age and uh, an Eastern view of the world would just be kind of cyclical around and around we go. Well, it's the Bible that gives you this sense of you start in a garden and you head towards a city. Israel begins in slavery in Egypt, and then they are brought through the wilderness towards the promised land. And there is a direction. The redemption moves you forwards in a way that includes the struggles that you have had and takes you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where those struggles are included in some kind of higher synthesis. And of course, you come through into the New Testament and Jesus lives our life and dies our death and then rises again including within himself the scars of his crucifixion, but raising them to a higher level of glory. And he tells these stories, doesn't he, of the yeast working its way through a batch of dough or like the mustard seed that is the smallest of all seeds, and yet it grows into the largest of garden plants that even the birds of the field end up perching in its branches. And there is a direction to history. This is a really profoundly Christian idea. Now, it's something that has been absorbed by all sorts of groups, be they Christian or not. I mean, there's a kind of a, a communist idea of moving towards a kind of a worker's paradise and a utopia. There's the Russian revolution, there's the French revolution, the very secular ways of people thinking about progress. Chairman Mao had his great leap forward back in the 1940s, 50s, killed millions and millions of Chinese through forced starvation and other methods which should always make us question what people mean by progress. You know, was the French Revolution progress? Was the Russian Revolution progress? Was Mao's Great Leap Forward progress? The intuition that Christianity has given to us that we're heading towards a great promised land always needs to be tested. And we have taken many, many wrong turns. 
I happen to think that the sexual revolution of the 1960s was another revolution that just like the French Revolution was not ultimately for our good. And so I, in one sense, am a progressive in the Jesus sense, because I pray every day, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I do think Christ is committed to the heavenization of earth. And day by day, he is getting the job done. So in that sense, I am a progressive, but not everything that marches under the banner of progress is. And if you look at Chairman Mao, for instance, you recognize that not every great leap forward is actually a great leap forward. But where do we get these ideas from? I think fundamentally and obviously it comes from Christianity. Yeah, it's interesting because that idea of progress can almost hijack our thinking. And it's the air we breathe. And so the idea that we're going forward, that things must be getting better, that the best is yet to come, is an idea that it just makes sense. You know, you don't have to explain it to me. I'd say, yes, of course that makes sense. It makes sense in my reality. I see it everywhere around me. And yet that can hijack us because we do a lot of wrong things in the name of progress. And so I love that idea of saying, no, you need to test it. <laughs> you know, every view or vision of progress is not actually actually in reality progress. And, you know, the fruit will bear out the tree and you'll find out what happens. And that's unfortunate because like you brought up with Chairman Mao or with the sexual revolution, sometimes we have to go decades after the fact to realize maybe this wasn't the giant leap forward that we thought it had been. The idea of a Jesus revolution that is turning the world upside down, is obviously at the heart of your book. And I want our listeners to wrestle with this. Humans went from seeing compassion as weakness, inequality as a noble <laughs> fact of life. And and sexual abuse as a obvious norm to all of a sudden taking human rights, justice, and the equality of all humans as givens. I think that any honest, thoughtful student of history has to admit that kind of 180 needs an explanation. And whatever explanation you give is going to sound kind of miraculous. So maybe we'll end on this note. How do people explain that 180? Historians who actually know the facts and are dealing with the reality on the ground, how do we explain what happened? I guess you have an evolutionary explanation that just says it turns out that compassion has a competitive advantage for the societies that adopt it, right? And so you can make a very modest, but I think only a modest case to say that Christians kind of stumbled across and stumbled across in a unique way. They stumbled across some doctrines and they had the sacral values to them and the storytelling ability and the authority of the church around them to enforce values that turned out to have a competitive advantage when it comes to the survival of our species. And Christians just happen to be the pioneers in terms of this sort of survival technology. One of my pushbacks on that would be, well, it's therefore quite a fluke that Christians not only had a kind of sexual view that invented monogamous marriage in the Christian sense that has done immense value for our society, but they also invented the compassion ethic. They also invented the enlightenment ethic. They also happened to believe in this thing called equality. They also happened to do this scientific revolution thing. At what stage do you say that it's more than a coincidence that Christianity has all these benefits under one roof? Another thing I push back on is just to say, well, if I'm playing pool with you and I bash the cue ball into the eight and it ricochets off the nine and then it doubles and then hits the two and then goes in off the seven, right? What do you call that? You call that a fluke, right? But if I tell you, right, I'm going to bash the cue ball into the nine and it's going to go into the eight and it's going to double up and down and it's going to go in off the two. If I call the shot in detail in advance and then I pull it off, what do you call me then? A genius, right? <laughs> the best pool player I know. <laughs> right. A total genius. 
And so at the end of the book, I just go into some of the Old Testament prophecies of the triumph of the way of the Messiah and Christ's own teachings about the triumph of his kingdom. And by any earthly standard, he's a total loser who is crucified in ignominy in his early 30s. And yet he predicted, he predicted the triumph of his way, like yeast working through a batch of dough, like the mustard seed that grows to become the greatest plant. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates do not advance. The church advances and will plunder Satan's kingdom and have this global impact. And the victim will become the victor. And what we've seen in terms of the triumph of the values of Christianity is that has indeed happened. The victim has become the victor. What is your explanation for that? And, you know, I give the analogy of uh, Big Bang Theory. You know, Big Bang Theory came because we observed an expanding universe and we inferred that it must have had a beginning point. Like if you wind back the clock, I guess if it's always been expanding, hit rewind and at some point you'll come to a singularity. You do that with history. There's been an expanding universe of Christian values that has taken over the world. Hit rewind. And you find that there was a singularity. Something happened in the first century. There was a big bang. Do you have an explanation for how the victim became the victor? And Christians have a very elegant explanation for that. They say, well, the victim became the victor on Easter Sunday. And that was the bang that exploded and released such spiritual energy into the world. And we're now living within that expanding universe of Christian values. So that's what I try to do at the end of the book. That's a lovely way of summarizing your book and of explaining exactly what we're talking about. For our listeners who maybe aren't Christians or are Christian curious or are saying, yeah, you know, I kind of thought I was done with the Christianity thing. I'm still thinking about it a little bit. I think you're asking a profound question, which is when you look at that Big Bang, how else do you explain it other than the God-man coming down, dying on a cross and rising again? Is there a better, more reasonable, (laughs) more rational explanation for that? And obviously you and I say, well, I think that is the most reasonable explanation, and yet it's worth exploring. And I think it's worth exploring even on the level, and you say at the end of your book, of, look, if you're going to have a Lord, if you're going to have a king, is there any better figure to have leading your life than the one who caused that cosmic values Big Bang? And of course, my answer would be no, there's not. There's no one better, no one truer, no one who's more good than he is or beautiful. And so I loved your book because it challenged me not only to reassess history, but to, I think, deepen my love for Jesus and the beauty that he's created in our world. I'd love to close this podcast with just giving you a chance to pray for our audience. Sure. Let me pray. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, you are compassion himself. You are kindness. You are the kindness and love of God. And you appeared to save us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we confess that we do not live up to uh, the compassion that you have shown in this world. We we recognize that uh, so often we are cruel or indifferent to the suffering that is in the world, and we are cruel and indifferent to you, and and yet you have arms wide open to us. We praise you that uh, you are you are the God Man. You are the Son of the Father, filled with the Spirit, with your arms open to the world, dying in compassion even for his enemies. And I pray that each of us would know that compassion not as an abstract value but as your very heartbeat, as the very definition of your person. I pray that we would all know you, Lord Jesus, that we might be raised up by you and to live your kinds of, your kind of life, your kind of way of self-giving love. Jesus, thank you for who you are. May we all 
know you in the depth of our hearts. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.